Good morning once again. This morning we come to the end of the 80s in the Psalms. We'll realize we're going to carry this exposition to next week as well. So we're not completely done with the 80s, but we will do that next week as well. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the the fact that your word is powerful. We thank you that your word gives life, that your word encourages us, that it is indeed a light unto our path, that when we find ourselves perplexed, when we find ourselves dismayed by circumstances, even our own failure, your word encourages us to trust in you to lean even more heavily upon your grace, your mercy, and your goodness, reminding us that, Father, you indeed will see to it that you never abandon us, you never desert us, that we never walk alone. Uh, We thank you that this is the ministry of your Holy Spirit, who continually grows within us and cultivates within us a sense of your presence, who draws us continually uh, into uh, your word through prayer, through fellowship, that we can have that relationship with you and then share that with others. We ask, Lord God, that as we come now uh, to hear uh, this uh, word from Psalm 89, Ethan, the Ezraite, that this ancient word, Lord God, by and with the help of your Holy Spirit, because your word is eternal, would be relevant and timely and personal that it would enhance our understanding of ourselves, but more importantly, our understanding of you and how you work. When you don't make sense to us, O Lord God, we pray for a greater faith to trust you, even when we don't fully understand what you are doing. And we ask, O Lord God, that you would give to us wisdom to trust you, faith and steadfastness, as you are a God of faith and steadfastness as well. And so these things we ask and pray, Lord God, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Now we're told as a superscript in Psalm 89 that this is a maskal of Ethan the Ezraite. Uh, and Ethan writes these words. He says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones? and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging sea when its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted for you, 
are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love will keep him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne is the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove my, from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all have I sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. And he has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. And you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth, and you have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Well, the first thing you notice about Psalm 89 is it's long. 52 verses long. If you're into statistics, that makes it the third longest psalm in the Psalter. Psalm 119 has 176 psalms. We're not doing that today. Psalm 78 has 72 verses. Psalm 89 is also, you'll notice, the, the last psalm of book three of the psalms. The psalms, as you know, are divided into five books. Each of the books of the psalms ends with a benediction like the one in verse 52. The one exception is uh, book two, 
which after the benediction in verse 19, Psalm 72 ends with this note in verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, why five books? Well, most scholars, most Old Testament scholars, believe that the five books of the Psalms are there to match the five books of Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you're further into statistics, you'll know that David wrote 73 Psalms, 49 psalms have no author attached to them. Asaph wrote 12, the sons of Korah 11, Solomon 2, while Moses, Heman the Ezraite, and Ethan the Ezraite each are credited with one psalm each. That's the housekeeping. Books 1 through 2 of the psalms are primarily psalms of David and celebrate the goodness, the mercy of God, the, the greatness of his glory and how he rescues and saves and delivers. When you get into book three, and you start book three with Psalm 73, you'll notice a distinct change as you move from 73 to 89 in the Psalms. All of those Psalms, most of them anyway, have a distinct tone of lament. Why, if God is so good and great and merciful in the first two books, suddenly when you get to the third book of the Psalms, they're filled with lament. And there's a reason for that, which we will go into but it has something to do with the character of the human heart in failing to keep God's rules and God's willingness to discipline those whom he loves. And that plays into our understanding of Psalm 89. The superscript tells us it is a mass kill of Ethan the Ezraite. Now, what is a mass kill? We see these musical notes throughout the Psalms. And to be honest, no one really knows what these musical notes, including mass kill, means. The best guess, the consensus among Old Testament types, is that a mass kill is a skillfully written song meant to give insight to whoever reads it. So in that sense, Psalm 89 is a teaching psalm. It's a wisdom psalm. It's meant to impart wisdom to whoever reads it. Wisdom about what? Wisdom and insight into the character of God, the character of his faithfulness, as well as the, fail, the, the, the frailty and fragility of the human heart in our inability to adequately and perfectly keep God's law, and still to trust him and to worship him and to praise him, and why we should continue to trust in him and believe in him. Who is Ezra, uh, Ethan the Ezraite? He's one of the chief musicians that is appointed by David to lead public worship. He sings in the temple choir, and he, along with Heman and Asaph, are leaders in that choir. They are also said to be prophets as well. And David chose Heman, who wrote Psalm 88, um, and Ethan. He chose them to be the, the leaders of his choir, if you will, uh, because... They were ones who could give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. That plays into his authorship of this psalm. As I said, Psalm 89 has 52 verses. So that means we can't possibly, and I won't even attempt to cover the whole psalm uh, in this one session. I, know I won't even go verse by verse, as is my custom. What I will do is focus on a couple of sections within the psalm, doing two sections this week and then three more sections next week. Because the psalm itself is built on a question. The psalm is written to answer a question. What do you do when God does something that is the exact opposite 
of what you expect him to do? How do you respond when God does something that challenges everything you have come to believe about him? When he does something that is the exact opposite of everything that you've come to believe about his character, everything that you've come to believe about his love, how do you respond to that? What do you do? Well, maybe the best way to answer that is to look at it from the viewpoint of someone who is closer to our time than to Ethan's time. Shortly after his wife, uh, Joy Davidman, died from cancer, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, A Grief Observed. He wrote it in 1961. He wrote it under a, a pseudonym, N.W. Clerk, because the, the language and the, the words that he uses to describe his grief were so shocking that he did not want to alienate many of his readers who had come to know him from the Chronicles of Narnia and others of his books. But when you read A Grief Observed, which was later published after his death under his name, you begin to see that here is a man whose soul and heart and mind are rubbed raw by grief. He loved joy passionately. And he wrestled mightily as she and he walked through her cancer and they prayed for God to heal her and enjoyed a respite when her cancer went into remission. And despite their prayers for her healing, she, she died. A very painful death from bone cancer. In the opening uh, Chapter of A Grief Observed, Lewis writes this. <clears throat> no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and a double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might as well be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Remember, these are the words of a man in grief. He writes, not that I am or I much in danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. That last statement is why Ethan wrote Psalm 89. What do you do when God does something that challenges everything that you have come to believe about him, and the conclusion you reach is not so there's no God after all, 
But as Lewis says, so, this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. So when Ethan found himself challenged by that conclusion, he didn't abandon his faith. Neither did Lewis. In fact, he clung to his faith even more firmly. How do we know this? Verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever, his faithfulness to all generations. Ethan is writing this psalm after going through a season where God felt absent from his life. He is writing this sermon from the perspective of a man who has gone into that dark valley and has emerged on the other side with an altered view, a better view of God's character and a better understanding of his own heart and nature. There are times when God purposely leads us through those valleys where his presence is seemingly absent from us, where no matter what we do, we just can't seem to feel him or sense him. And yet we go through the valley because that is how he leads us to a deeper understanding of his character and a deeper understanding of our need for him as well. Given, now, given what Ethan wrote in the second half of the psalm, starting in verse 38 and then on through to verse 51, how is that possible? How is he able to write with such conviction? I will sing of the steadfast love, not just hum it, right? Not just sort of tap a little tune, but I will sing. He raises his voice. More than that, he will go out and he will tell other generations about God's faithfulness. This God that at one point felt a million and one miles away from him. He's able to do that because of faith. That's what Psalm 89 is about. It's about growing deep roots of faith in a season when God seems to have done something that is absolutely contrary to his nature. When he has done something that is absolutely the opposite of his goodness, his mercy, and his love. When everything that we have sung about him seems false, it's faith that allows us to turn that coin around and see the other side and say, ah, he still is faithful. What is faith? What Ethan learns, what we learn about faith is that it's simply trusting God in the present based on what God has done in the past, which is why he reviews. The first half of the psalm is a review of God's past dealings with Israel and with David. He reviews his past, the past of God's faithfulness and goodness. And having seen and testified to how good God is to his people, that enables him not only to trust God in the present, but to depend on him for the future as well. Because that's what faith is. It's trusting God now based on what he's done before so that we'll trust him what comes after. And what Ethan aims to teach us in this mass kill is that when God does something that is contrary to everything we believe about him, that he's still worthy of our faith, still worthy of our hope, still worthy of our love, and most importantly, still worthy of our worship. That's why it ends with the benediction. This, how do we know this? <clears throat> we sang about it in, with the hymn, Great is thy faithfulness. Right? Jeremiah says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great 
is your faithfulness. That's Lamentations 3.22. Now, Jeremiah didn't write that on a brilliantly sunny day with bluebirds chirping, sipping a, you know, a macchiato latte, right? With his ear, AirPods in listening to hymns. He writes that looking at ground zero on September 12th as he surveys the devastation in Babylon, in Jerusalem after Babylon has invaded and destroyed the temple. And Lamentations is aptly named. It's a lament. But in the middle of that lament, Jeremiah says, The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. How can someone do that? How can someone like Ethan say these things? Unless God has instilled, God has created, God has injected faith into the heart and soul of someone who is wrestling earnestly the very character of God. So that's how we're going to move through at least a couple of sections uh, this morning, that we're going to learn to trust in God's character and faithfulness by remembering at least two things. First, we're going to remember his faithfulness to David, and then we're going to remember his faithfulness to his covenant, uh, his faithfulness to do what is right uh, according to his character. So let's, let's just take this apart. So we're going to remember God's faithfulness to David Just listen again to verses 3 and 4, and then 19 to 24. This is recalling, again, the history of of God's goodness. He says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. Um, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, this is verse 20, with my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him, my arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him, I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. How does that help us? How does knowing that God is faithful to David, teach us to trust him when he does something that runs contrary to our idea of what he should do. Well, you have to know something about David, right? You have to know something about David's past. That inasmuch as God chose him, inasmuch as in 2 Samuel 7, God makes this wonderful promise to David that I will establish your throne and your legacy forever. We also know that David is a a fallible human being. He writes Psalm 51. He writes Psalm 51 after he's confronted by the prophet Nathan about his adultery with Bathsheba. We also know that God forgave him for that sin. That when God had every reason to condemn David and to remove him from the throne, that he didn't. God made a covenant with David. He made a promise to David. And that promise included a promise never to leave him, never to abandon him, never to desert him. But there's a better covenant that God made with a better David. And that's one that the covenant with David points to. Because in the same way God made a covenant with David, he made a covenant with his son. He made a covenant with us through his son. And we celebrate that covenant every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
That's why we remember by eating and drinking, because it's those tangible symbols, the bread and the cup, that remind us that something has happened to change our status before God. We may feel abandoned by God, but Jesus was truly abandoned by God. We may feel deserted by God, but Jesus was truly deserted by God. We may feel a sense of God's absence, but Jesus truly felt what it was to be forsaken by God. He said so on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsook him so that we would be forgiven for our sins and never know what it is like to be alone. Never know what it would be like to walk completely in darkness without any help from God to get us through that darkness into the light onto the other side. Where did that happen? It happened on the cross. Because in addition to being the place where Christ died for us, the cross is where God abandoned Jesus so that we would only feel abandoned. It's where God deserted Christ where we would only feel deserted. It's the ultimate demonstration is the cross of God's justice, love, and mercy. It's why the steadfast love never ceases. The cross is God's promise that he will never leave you that he will never abandon you, that he will never desert you. Because the cross is where our sin has been atoned for. Not just the sin that we commit this past week or the sin that we committed eight years ago, but the sin we'll commit tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. That the cross reminds us that we are forgiven. That even when we discover so, this is what God's really like after all. God will not let you go. If he has placed his seal upon you, if he has put his spirit within you, if he has caused you, as we learned about yesterday for 1 Peter, if God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, then we are guarded by him, kept by him, so that the inheritance that he has promised to us the one that won't spoil, fade, or perish. So if God has chosen us to make us his own, he's not going to let you go. He paid too high a price to let you go. He gave too much to abandon you. And so in bringing us into this relationship with Christ, even when our circumstances lead us to believe that God is not who he claims to be, he will still stay by your side. Always. Now, does this mean that we should then go out and sin and disobey God so that we'll enjoy this overflowing sense of his grace and goodness? No. Read Romans 6. And Paul says the same thing. You perish the thought, he says. Don't do that at all. We should always make it our goal uh, to follow the Lord and keep his commands. But we're not perfect. We'll, we will not always do the right thing at the right time, for the right reason. We will sin. That's the bad news. The good news is that when we sin, we have Jesus as our atoning sacrifice. He is our representative before God who visibly reminds the Father that our sin has been atoned for by his death, forever sealed by his resurrection, signifying God's approval of Christ as our atoning sacrifice for sin that long before God made a covenant with David, 
He made a covenant with his son. And we learn about this covenant, we hear about this covenant at the end of the letter to the Hebrews. That marvelous benediction at the end of Hebrews 13. The writer says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. There's a lot to unpack in that benediction. If God has established an eternal covenant with his son, and we have entered into that covenant by faith, the promise is that God is continually at work in us, even in those moments when we don't sense his presence. I like the way Tim Keller says it, because a sense of God's presence implies A sense of God's absence implies his presence. You can't miss something that was not there in the first place. So there are times when you will feel God is a million and one miles or more away. Don't despair. That sense of his absence is an indication that he is present. And he is drawing you and he is leading you and he is reminding you. I haven't let you go. I haven't abandoned you. I haven't deserted you. My reasons for where you are, why you are right now, those are mine to keep. And I will let you know them as you follow me. Job never found out why he went through all that he went through. He just simply got a clearer vision and an understanding of God's glory, majesty, and greatness. And after all of his complaint, he put his hand over his mouth and says, You're God, I'm not. You do what you seem right, and I will trust you regardless. That's what happens when you sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever and you trust him, even when he's doing something that doesn't make sense. If God kept his promise to Jesus and raised him from the dead, he will keep his promise to raise us from the dead. He already has by raising us from spiritual death into spiritual life. If he kept his promise to Jesus never to abandon him to the grave but raise him up, so too God will keep his promise never to leave us, never to desert us, never to abandon us, never to forsake us. There is nothing, as Paul says in Romans 8, nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, nothing under the earth. No earthly ruler, no earthly power, no unearthly ruling, no demonic spirit can separate us from God If our faith is truly placed in Christ, as Christ is in God, we are in Christ. And we are held secure. Remember, too, that God chose David. And that election is is magnificent. And it's important. Because it guarantees two things. God chose David. Which means he will never abandon David. If he chose him, he's not going to reject him. And secondly, it means that David's faith will never fail so long as God holds him fast. Your faith, my faith, if God has chosen it, if he has pulled us out of darkness into the kingdom of his son, if he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into a relationship with Christ, there is nothing and no one on this earth above it or below it that can separate us from God's love. That's why I love passages like what we studied in 1 Peter about God causing us to be born again. 
Right? This election that is sure and certain because of Christ. Paul affirms this in Ephesians 1.5, that even as the God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? Why did he do that? So that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. Think about that as you go through that season of dryness. You have been chosen before the foundation of the world. To be holy and blameless. I don't feel holy. I don't feel blameless. That's a feeling. That's not a fact. Paul states the fact. You're in Christ. You're holy. You're in Christ. You're blameless. God seems absent. He's not. He predestined us, Paul says, for adoption to himself so that through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, his will, and so sometimes when we go through periods of dryness and darkness, it is according to God's will, remembering that we are holy and blameless, that he has chosen us. He's not going to let you go. And he's not going to let you go until you have learned to trust him. How do you experience the steadfast love of the Lord? Well, you read the Psalms. You read about his faithfulness. You learn to praise him, <laughs> When you get that job, when she says yes, when the doctor says, nothing to worry about, the scans are clear. Learn to praise him for those moments. And learn to lament and cry out to him when life seems unfair and God is apparently treating you in an unkind way. Learn the language of lament. I think we're at times afraid to complain to God because we feel that he will reject us. Read the Psalms. Read 73 to 89 and learn the language of lament because it will also, I think, sharpen our awareness of praising him and rejoicing in him. Remember how he has blessed you in the past. There's that old hymn. I don't know if we sing it here, but I remember learning it as a young Christian. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. There are times when... <clears throat> Early in our marriage in seminary when we were just struggling financially, and remember, you know, Jill was working at a dental office, and I would come home from class, and another bill came. Every time we had to change the oil in the car, it was a financial crisis. You know, rent was due and all of these crushing things, and, and I remember just praying, and it was like the Holy Spirit just promptly said, Michael, just look around this little apartment in which you live, and, and name one thing that you bought with your own money that I haven't given to you. And the only thing that we bought with our own money was our sleeper sofa. 10% discount at White River Junction because it was cash and carry. Everything else in that apartment, from our bed to our kitchen table to the TV, people gave to us that God had provided. So remember what God has done for you in the past. Think about those things. He's not going to suddenly chuck it all and say, well, you've reached a limit, pal. That's it. You're only going to get so much, and then I'm going to cut you off. Like George Costanza tells, uh, like, you know, yeah, George's father, well, cutting you off, George. That's it. You're done. God's not going to do that to you. Remember also that he's forgiven you for every sin you've ever committed. Every sin you will commit has been taken care of by the blood of Christ. Remember also, and most importantly, that his ways are not your ways. He is God after all. I am not. I have, <laughs> believe me, I have spent a lot of time telling God how he should run his universe. Somebody doesn't listen to me. 
Sometimes, like Job, it's best just to be silent. Learn to be silent. Learn the importance of silence. The more we remember how God has been faithful to us in the past, the more we recall his faithfulness to us, the more we learn to trust him in the here and now, the more we learn then to trust and depend on him for the future. There were times when uh, we lived in Canada, like the last couple of years we were there, it was just really, it was very difficult. The church was fine, everything was going, we were just going through a lot of financial hardship. And I would walk our little dog um, down our street, like 45 minutes, and I would just let God have it. I would just, I would just tell him everything that was lousy about how he was treating me, and how could he do this, and how could he do that. And I remember after all, and, and, and after all of that, 45 minutes of just ranting and raving, just getting all of that stuff out, and you're spent. Right? You're just emotionally spent. And so that's when I felt the Holy Spirit just say, are you done? Are you done? Let's learn to worship, Michael. Let's, let's think about, despite all of this pressure, have you missed a mortgage payment? Have you missed a car payment? Are the kids fed? Do they have clothes? One by one. Remember those things, and then you repent and you trust. His covenant with David is superseded by his covenant with Christ. And his covenant with Christ is one that he makes us a part of by his grace so that by faith we will trust him. And his faithfulness then also guarantees that he will always do what is right. Look at verses 14 through 16. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. Just as God's might and his rule never change, his character never changes. What is his character? Righteousness, justice. They are the foundation of his authority, of his rule. Steadfast love, faithfulness. God's authority is established in ways that guarantee that whatever he does, it's going to be the right thing for the right reason at the right time. I always am impressed when I go through the Sermon on the Mount, we come to Matthew 6, where Jesus, before he introduces the Lord's Prayer, he tells the disciples, your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then he teaches them how to pray. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he wait until after he teaches them how to pray? It's the answer, I should have realized, is obvious. Because you want to go into prayer expecting God knows what you need is going to provide it. Why? Because righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. That's how he deals with us. Righteously and justly. For the sake of Christ. If Jesus rules with righteousness and justice, steadfast love and faithfulness. He expects that same kind of character from those in positions of leadership. And it's very easy to say, well, you know, I'm not a king. I'm not, I don't have any kind of other authority. Yes, you do. Are you a father? Are you a mother? 
Are you a single parent? Are you a manager? Are you a deacon? Are you an elder? Do you teach Sunday school? Do you serve in hospitality? You have, through Christ, these characteristics woven into you, injected into you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we're going to fall short of God's standard. We're not always going to be and do the right thing. That's why there's grace. That's why there's mercy. That's why there's loving kindness. So when God does something that challenges everything we believe about him, it's not God who's changed. I always uh, remember, I think it was R.C. Sproul who said that when you have an argument with God about a point of doctrine, guess who's wrong? We learn by seeing God do things in our life that don't make sense according to what we think about him. It's God's way of changing us, of getting us to worship him as he truly is, not as we would want him to be. That's maturity. That's faith growing. It's his way of reminding us that we are created in his image and his likeness, not he in ours. And that when you read Romans 8, you understand that the things that we experience are designed and meant and intended by God to conform us into the image and likeness in Christ. And sometimes that's painful because we learn things about ourselves that have been hidden in the dark or we have kept from others and tried to keep from God and he draws them out because he leads us into times when he does and acts in ways that don't seem to make sense. So when God challenges everything we believe about him, it's good to remember that he is a God of steadfast love. Now, what is that? I've been saying it the whole time. I've been using that word. It's a word we don't use. It's old-fashioned words, steadfast. His steadfast love. The English Standard Version, that's a translation of one of my favorite Hebrew words, chesed. God's steadfast love. It's his faithfulness. It's his faithfulness to his love to be loving toward us. When someone is steadfast, they are loyal. They are committed. They are dependable. They are trustworthy. They are unwavering. They are unfaltering. When someone is steadfast, you can count on them to come through in the clutch. They never let you down. Some of you have a steadfast friend. A steadfast friend is someone you can call at 3 a.m., I need help. I have a flat tire in a Corresponds Expressway. A steadfast friend is someone you can call when your intrepid pastor drives through a bridge that's too low for his truck. And people suddenly go into motion to come around to help. That's a steadfast friend. That's the kind of God we worship. A steadfast friend is someone who has seen you at your worst and still stands by you because they've also seen you at your best. There's someone who wants, who makes you want to be a better person and who helps you become that better person. That's a steadfast friend. That's God's steadfast love, constantly molding, constantly shaping, never puts us in the kiln to until we're fully baked. He's always rearranging, always molding us, always conforming us. And we'll never be finished until we get to glory. 
And even then, we're going to be continually learning and seeing. The steadfast love of God means that he is faithful. He's loyal. He's holy. And most importantly, he is good. Always, always, always. How can Ethan say that, given the lament that he offers up in 38 to 41? Well, he, because he's reminding himself of these things. That these attributes, his righteousness, his justice, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, these are so fundamental to God's character that he personifies them as royal pages. You ever watch the, I mean, it's not really a, an interesting thing to watch. You ever watch the State of the Union address? You know that before the president enters uh, the, the, the hall there, the, whoever the sergeant of arms is, he comes in and he yells, Mr. Speaker, the president of the United States. And then they strike up the band. Here, these royal pages, here is God, the Lord of the universe. Faithfulness and justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. And so they're announcing, we sang about the, the cherubim in the temple crying out, Holy, 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 the Lord God of hosts. Blessed are those who worship you, says Ethan. Knowing the truth about God's character, his covenant faithfulness, and the truth of his sovereign rule over all creation, Ethan praises him and worships him. He glorifies him. I like this psalm because it reminds me of one of my favorite texts. I don't know what your life verse is. I don't even know if you need to have a life verse. But my life verse is not what you would think. It's maybe one of them anyway. It's 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9. You're probably thinking, well, what does that say? This must be super spiritual. No. It reminds me of how fallible I am. We have this treasure in jars of clay, says Paul, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Ever been perplexed? That's, again, an old-fashioned word. Look it up. That's when you're like, what the heck? What is God doing? I can't make sense of this. Paul is saying it's okay to be perplexed. Just don't let it drive you to despair. Be perplexed, but go to the cross. Be perplexed, but go to the Word. Be perplexed, but go to prayer. Be perplexed, but seek out the fellowship of like-minded believers who can encourage you. I've known people, I myself have been perplexed. And I'll end with this. Martin Luther prayed this prayer. Luther was a firebrand. He was one of the primary movers that God used in the Protestant Reformation. We have this image of Luther being this strong bull of a man who just bowled over his opponents with his logic and it's just a force of his will. But Luther struggled mightily at times to sense God's presence. Listen to this prayer. Lord, here is an empty mug that needs to be filled. My Lord, fill it. I am frail in the faith. Strengthen me. I am cold in love. Warm me and make me fervent.
that my love may reach out to my neighbor. I do not have a strong and stable faith. Martin Luther! I do not have a strong and stable faith. At times I doubt and, and I'm unable to trust you completely. Oh Lord, help me. Strengthen my faith and my trust in you. Amen. You think about that. Let's pray. It is good to know, Lord, you will answer that prayer in the affirmative and in the positive. You will strengthen our faith. You will fill us with love and strength and courage and the sense of your presence so that we can, with Ethan and countless others of your saints, sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever, your faithfulness to all generations. This we ask and declare in Jesus' name. Amen.